This episode of the podcast is without a sponsor. And I'd like to take this opportunity to just make a quick little call out. If you or anyone you know is interested in sponsoring the podcast, then please send an email to me at info at frontlinesmtb.com. Happy to talk about various rates, placements, and ad types, and just another way that we can keep this podcast going. Now on with the show. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Hopefully you're back here because you've listened to part one of this episode. This is part two of my conversation with Richard Edwards of Imba Trail Solutions. And hopefully you're back here because you've already listened to part one. If you haven't listened to part one, then I recommend backing up an episode and listening to that first. Now, while previewing some of this conversation for my partner, my my wife, and who is actually the credited producer of this show, she asked, who is this guy? Which I think really summarizes how I felt listening to Richard. Speaking with Richard, he is very clearly a subject expert, and I've looked at some of my local projects differently the last couple of weeks. Hopefully you've also found part one to be inspiring, and I think you'll find the same for part two. Now, as always, I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 84 of Frontlines. We were talking about kind of big changes that that can happen, uh, big improvements that can happen. But, you know, starting fresh with the trail network and being able to kind of think about uh, the whole network working together. And and when you're tackling, you know, brand new projects, you know, few trails even on the ground existing or you're going to do an entire revamp of a, a trail network. There's a lot of advantages to that. Um, and most trail associations are are, you know, band-aid fixes or little improvements little reroutes and I, and I do want to discuss that as well but before we get to to those smaller kind of fixes or temporary solutions what are some other kind of things that that you think of when you go in and, and redo an entire network or, or build a, a new network from the ground up what are the desired outcomes for the community a lot of times as mountain bikers we get myopic why do we want trails because we want to ride that's awesome but We've seen this transition in the last decade. The primary drivers of projects, they may be mountain bikers sometimes, but only if they're also community leaders. The people driving the projects, the people coming to trails labs, the people who are really moving the levers are oftentimes people who want to change their communities and see trails and mountain biking as a tool to do that. Much like David and the Welsh Mountain Bike Initiative, he didn't set out to make great mountain biking. He set out to improve the economy of his country and saw mountain biking as a tool to do that. That's what's going on in Bentonville. That's what's going to happen in West Virginia. These places that have identified that they want to revitalize their community. So the first thing we're going to look at are what are the community outcomes you want to have? Is this trail to drive tourism? Is this trail to support tax revenue? Is this trail intended to drive revenue for that park agency? Because monetized trails, fee-based trails are different than open trails in terms of your trail system layout. Is it meant to uh, um, not draw tourists, but just provide for the local community? 
is intended specifically to serve a non-traditional outdoor community and needs to be designed and built in such a way that it can be actively programmed and invite people into an open space who traditionally view open spaces as havens for criminal activity? Is it intended to reduce obesity or drive healthcare outcomes? Because a lot of these outcomes are now becoming things that are metric at the beginning of a project with desired outcomes. And the funding is awarded to those projects based on achieving some of those outcomes. So this is where we can unlock millions of dollars for trails. And as mountain bikers, we happen to get awesome riding on the way, but we also get really powerful, vibrant, healthy communities. And we get to live in great places to live. Because, you know, it's only a, I lived in a place where I was like one of like seven mountain bikers in the county. We had hundreds of miles of trail that was very lightly ridden. Yeah. And uh, I moved to a place that had eh, probably more trail, but a whole lot more riders. And the trails were at least packed down and you could tell where the trails were. Um, and somebody had probably been out that morning with a saw after a windstorm. So you didn't have to cut everything out of your way. Yeah. So yeah, we start with the outcomes and that kind of, does it want to be at an event venue? Because the functional criteria for an event venue for a race course, especially for like a large public race course, like say a large state level NICA course is very different from a public trail system. And you can co-locate those two on top of each other, but you have to be pretty intentional about it to have it be both a successful public trail system and an event course, especially if you're going to host events and keep most of that trail system open to the public simultaneously. So here's a, I'll ask a question. Um, <laughs> what's the, in terms of a ratio of numbers for a large public event, a large public race event, like a, like a, a national level or, or, a, or a high level series or a NICA event, what's the, uh, um, what's the dominant visitor group class? With regards to, do you mean uh, racers versus just kind of spectators type yeah, of thing? Right there. Well, you've got cyclists and you've got pedestrians. Yeah. Most of your, yeah, that's, that's exactly it right there. That in a lot of these events, um, you might have a three to one to five to one spectator to racer ratio. Mm -hmm. So that everyone's really focused on the race course. Yeah. You have so many more people who aren't racers who want to <laughs> be near the racers yeah. and their, their trail system, their navigation routes and their wayfinding routes need to be figured out. Otherwise, especially if you're in a public park or that has uh, um, landscape, other landscape objectives for management, yes. yeah. you can have some big outsized impacts. Yeah. But yeah. How we, we try and think about spectator navigation and transportation as much as the racers, because also spectators want to see their racers as frequently as possible. So yeah, we want to know what, what's the out, what are the desired outcomes of the trail system? And then we look at the terrain and see how we can match that up and what the opportunities are that play with that. And then we tie that in with, uh, um, because we're big on implementable plans, not just dreamy plans. Pipe dreams are easy. Things that you can actually build are tougher. We try and figure out what the uh, constraints are, financial constraints, um, employment constraints, regulatory constraints in terms of uh, um, what a uh, uh, permitting is going to be required or environmental or cultural approvals are going to be required. Do we uh, do we have to go through a NEPA process or a historical review? Do we need to talk to the local elders of the tribe, depending upon whose land it's on? Are there uh, liability concerns that need to be addressed because of the uh, personal injury jurisdiction that that lies within, basically which state it's in? Do uh, are there uh, tree ordinances or permitting requirements? Does the past use been a brownfield? Does it require uh, um, an ESA? 
for clearance um, before trails can be done. And those all kind of give us the box of what's available. What are the desired outcomes? What are the opportunities? What are the constraints? And that kind of filters down into what the possibility is. A lot of trail networks uh, happen organically or, you know, they, they are adopted and they, in the past, function. Maybe not great, but they functioned. And like so many things, COVID has kind of brought to light uh, just stuff that hasn't worked. You know, these uh, and and stuff that is is far more important than than trails you know with uh, just a greater inequality in life and um but within the the trails context what can we do right now you know is there is there stuff that we can do to fix or better improve that's and i dare say use the the term temporary because these these probably should be permanent things that should be added to a trail network but what are some of the the fast solutions that can be added to an existing trail network that is experiencing a much higher demand and uh and and that goal interference is is uh becoming more of an issue a bad trail is like a bad bike it's a whole lot better than no trail or no bike any trail is better than none we do have a lot of legacy trails out there and if you're looking at restructuring those or doing the work on those that's necessary but uh first analyze the problem and then setting a vision for where you want to be in the future where do you want to be five or ten years from now because maybe it's not fixing this 10 miles of trail that's in a really nasty place because that's the only place the city would let us build trails was on the old landfill 10 years ago maybe instead now with the political capital mountain bikers have and the renaissance of importance of outdoor recreation maybe it's possible to talk the county into buying that 200 acres they've been eyeing that has 500 feet elevation and we can build the next park or the next you can build the next park or the next trail system we have a great opportunity here with the full funding of the land conservation water fund for the first time ever to acquire new open space that's why trails assist with conservation as we drive demand for public open space Trails are a visitor management tool and a visitor demand tool. And so if there's a huge push or there's crowding on trails right now, yep, you could make changes to those existing trails. But I would say harness that momentum, harness that demand to have the big picture conversations about planning, making sure that new trails and the demand for trails is listed in your state's comprehensive outdoor recreation plan, because that's a critical part of getting LWSF funding push your public leaders to consider acquiring additional open space and use that demand to drive new opportunities. There will always be opportunities to be fixing existing stuff. Now, if we're talking about the Forest Service, this is a little bit different because they have an amazing legacy of uh, non-intentional trails, trails that were just adopted from whatever they were before, mine road, forest road, farm road, hunting road, game trail. Some of those, when you look at it in the big picture, this is something we teach in our trail assessment troubleshooting classes is uh, can you fix it within the corridor and with your available resources? Because if you can't really fix it, you might as well ignore it. Let it get worse and push it. Because a lot of times those solutions rely on relocating the entire trail corridor, especially if the existing corridor really doesn't meet the intent of the trail or what you want the trail to do. You might be better off scrapping it, putting it to bed and 
putting a trail in the right place that does what you want it to do and is going to be uh, maintainable. And that's so part of this is having a vision. What do you want to have? And then assessing what you really have, because you may find that it's like, okay, you take your uh, you've started riding and you love your bike, but it's your buddy's old rock hopper from 95. And you take it down to the bike shop and you're like, man, I want to get some, I want to get some of those fat tires and I want some 27 and a halfs on this. And I want, I want a new fork for this. And the mechanic looks at you and he's like, dude, you need a new bike. No, no, this bike works great, man. It still rides great. I just want you to put some new parts on it. Yeah. And he's having the awkward kind of those parts won't even fit on your bike. We, yeah. can't, we can't buy those anymore. They don't make headsets like that anymore. Um, <laughs> and that's, and that's, we're having that same conversation with people about their trails, but it's the same thing because you learn to ride on that bike. You're really emotionally invested into that bike. Mm. If you were completely emotionally neutral on it, you'd come to the conclusion that this is a tired bike and done. And I probably need to let it go. And that's where people get with trails, especially people who've put a lot of sweat and tears into specific trails. Mm-hmm. They can become very attached to that alignment, even more so if they've done a lot of work to try and make that alignment work and it's still unsustainable and still doesn't provide the experience they want. And that's not to say that there's not a lot of trails out there that are very worth saving and putting a huge amount of effort into to providing unique experiences. But it's always good to look at it from the big picture and to make sure that you're putting – Irregardless of how many millions of dollars people bring to trails, there's always going to be limited resources. It's good to make sure that you're investing them wisely. I personally really resist situations that will have me working on the same section of trail more than once in a couple of years. Unless it's vegetation maintenance. If it's tread work, man, no. What's, I like to do tread work that, that I will not have to deal with in the next decade. It's one of the reasons I'm like, uh, bridges are a reluctant necessity, Yeah, but especially timber stick built bridges, you are leaving a legacy for somebody else to replace <laughs> within, within your living memory, unless you're, unless you're older than I am yeah. now, within 20 years, someone's going to have to do something about that bridge. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, in terms of like working with existing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Take a good look at what you have. And this is where it can be useful to bring somebody in from outside because these are going to be difficult conversations to have within your community. And uh, sometimes it's easy to have someone from outside to uh, um, have everybody yell at, especially if you want to talk to the people in your community afterwards Um, (laughs) and uh, work towards coming to an understanding about what kind of trails people really like, what they want. Now this can be difficult to have if uh, this is a challenge we typically face. If all the trails, if you don't have any representative models of certain trail experiences or types in your community, it's uh, it's much like you've been riding a certain type of bike for years. You had a state-of-the-art Klein mantra, and you rode it for years, and it was awesome, and you did great things with it. You can't grasp what a current dually would ride like without ever test riding one. You, you, there's no way you can have empathy for that experience because you're always going to think that it rides better a little better than your mantra, but not the night and day difference that it's going to be. Not the like, oh my gosh, I had no idea it could feel like this. I can ride that piece of trail. I've never been able to clean that piece of trail. That And so that's with trails, it can definitely be that way. Especially it, we think of mountain bikers as a traveling group of people. Yeah. But that seems to be a 
not representative of the that that's definitely like a group of the enthusiast mountain bikers that travel a lot and lots of mountain bikers don't they know their yeah. local trails and they know the trails around them yeah and they, that's what mountain biking is to them yeah so in some ways we have all these different mountain bike communities that are very insular yeah and very focused on like their trails and that's how they should be and they have a hard time grasping these other kinds of trails the jacuti book the guidelines for quality trail experiences one of its objectives was to try and help make those different trail types explainable through pictures and descriptions to different types of people and land managers. Because we had BLM land managers who'd go out and talk to a bunch of mountain bikers and mountain bikers wanted trails. What kind of trails do you want? I want these awesome trails. Okay. And the BLM would build trails and then there'd be buyer's remorse. Why are you guys building illegal trails? Well, those aren't the trails we want, but you said you wanted mountain bike trails. So we got these mountain bike experts to build you mountain bike trails. Well, wasn't the kind of mountain bike trail they were looking for. If you're going to embark on something like that, it is good to have folks involved in the process that have the experience of riding a bunch of other different stuff so you can pollinate with those fresh ideas. Because we do see a lot of attempts. This was common with the, uh, after 2008, the ERA Act. A lot of money got dumped on our public trails. Just band-aiding them back into the same experience they were before, which may not be the experience that the new crew of mountain bikers is looking for. It's like, well, that wasn't a great trail 60 years ago. And now we've just rebuilt it to a 60 year old spec and it still doesn't provide a great experience. And you're still wondering why a lot of people aren't coming out on the weekends to volunteer to help you maintain this trail when they're getting to build these awesome trails with ripping berms and tabletops over here in this County park. And that's where they're all going on their Saturdays. If you've got a problem with trails that aren't meeting expectations or having to, uh, uh, quality issues or mud hole issues or sustainability issues, look at that as an opportunity to recreate that into the trail system you want to have to ride. It doesn't have to be a trail system that it was. A lot's changed in mountain biking and, and we've already kind of spoke to this, but the conversation that continues to happen is is mountain bikers and and uh, conservation and there are certainly tons of examples of you know what uh self-identified conservationists kind of being combative against mountain bikers and and you know we've as mountain bikers have have always tried to to stress that we are conservationists as well um what what's the future kind of hold for us what's our relationship what what role can we play when it comes to conservation? Use the demand for trails to push to acquire new open space. That's where a lot of of trail systems, that's one of the reasons I love working in the Southeast. One of my favorite places to develop trails is because there is so much new open space that's being acquired and protected. So it's not uncommon to be, here's a thousand acres. Wow, where'd this come from? Oh, we bought it last year. Land trusts, public purchases, Alabama. Um, this is their, their Forever Wild Fund, funded through offshore go- oil and gas leases. Bought thousands of acres of land. Um, Coldwater Mountain is on Forever Wild property. Trails in my backyard in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Donated piece of property, 50 acres, but uh, was likely to not remain open space is in a prime place to put a subdivision got trails put in there it's one of the huge community amenity now that land's protected 
places that have trails, if we build compelling trails, we can take people who don't consider themselves conservationists, may not really have any deep conservation ethic, but they find they really like the trail and they really like that experience and they become at worst de facto allies that support that open space because it harbors that trail. At best, the blissful time they have on that trail translates to the surrounding landscape and those same feelings they have become conflated with that landscape and we seduce them into becoming conservationists through the powerful experiences they have on the trail. So that's if we can get kids on trails and they love it, they're going to love the landscape around it. I like the outdoors because I grew up as a Boy Scout. Spent time out woods, had pleasurable experiences outside. That's why I consider it valuable. That's where having trails and getting specifically, even if we're building trails of a new style that may not be what really what is the most exciting trail to me, that trail has huge public value for the next generation and the future generations because it gets the next current, the next generation that's coming up, those folks who are going to be voting soon, it gets them involved in open space. And uh, if Johnny doesn't grow up in the woods, if he grows up or Jen grows up in the strip mall, and uh, I should pick a better younger person's name for that, um, <laughs> they're, uh, they're not going to want to put their tax dollars towards funding open space. Yeah. And this is uh right now we uh we rely on some strange mechanisms for funding open space federally in terms of tax dollars. We did Pittman Robertson fund all the wildlife conservation areas are help all the state wildlife or uh, all your boat ramps are help funded by Pittman Robertson dollars. All the guns and ammo that were sold this year, every one of them had some Pittman Robertson tax associated with it. As mountain bikers, I have to ask, what do we do to fund open space? Why aren't we all paying a small percentage on our bike products, on our helmets, on our on our camelbacks, on our bikes that goes back into a fund that helps purchase open space? In terms of being conservationists, I would uh, we're getting more and more access to lands that were traditionally locked to us. National Park Service, happy to work with them, but the newest national park in West Virginia has 14 miles of trail in it that Imba helped build with the Boy Scouts. Oldest national park in the country just got a brand its first trail open to mountain bikes connecting to uh, in North in North, Hot Springs connecting to the Northwoods Trail system. There's definitely the the National Park Service grasps the importance of relevance and how important it is to have future generations involved in open space. And this is probably the most damaging thing about the current interpretation of the Wilderness Act. Mm. I have to be very careful about what I say here. Um, <laughs> and uh, if I veer at all from Imba's stated position, these are my personal opinions. But uh, I'm not going to recommend that the Wilderness Act be changed, but that that has driven a wedge into the conservation community. The, uh, the push and closure of current trails open to mountain bikes or the interpretation of the Wilderness Act mechanized to apply to mountain bikes has uh, myself, I, I think uh, I mean, all my life as a mountain biker, banned from those areas and then lost trail access. There's several trails I've ridden that were like, I still remember those trails to this day. I can see them in my mind. I'll never ride a bike on them again. 
that helps that that drives away people that should be attracted to the conservation community. So I definitely urge when folks are considering new wilderness, they really take into account their future allies. Altering the Wilderness Act could be hugely potentially dangerous in other ways politically. So, and I'm not sure how viable it is, though it is certainly a nice talking point um, for fundraising. But uh, I, uh, I think that's been one of the missteps of the conservation movement in the past 20 years is not to be able to look forward. And generally when we see people who are really anti-mountain biker and say we're damaging things, um, it's folks who are so close into the land or the situation that they can't see the bigger picture, that they have the privilege of working in sites that are fully funded or working in sites that are already protected so they can say, hey, you don't belong here. But if they were working outside of those boundaries on land that wasn't protected and trying to protect it, then they see us as potential allies. So if someone says, hey, I'm a conservationist and you're destroying the land by being here as a mountain biker, that that land's probably already protected. Yeah. And I think but more importantly, they're driving away potential allies. Yeah. Interesting. It's uh, all of us who like to recreate. Even those of us and the people in the woods who hate mountain bikers or people mountain bikers who hate people hunting near where they ride all of us who are outdoor recreationalists who can manage just like people in their communities can get together and like love their community, but manage to hate their neighbors. That's all we're doing. We're just stabbing each other in the back when there are other forces outside of our communities. You know, once you pave the area or once you, you know, get rid of that open space, that's a much bigger impact than the minor impacts we can have on each other's experience. Really when it gets down to like, we found this in the wilderness negotiations in Virginia where uh, they didn't have a good political stance. So they needed to negotiate with mountain bikers, which led to a lot of long conversations and a lot of heart bearing. And really what we realized is it came down to visitor experience. Mm-hmm. They didn't want mountain bikes on the trails they hiked on. That's what it came down to. And it was like, man, the wilderness act is a really horrible tool for visitor management you are that, that is like yeah it's like dealing with a fly with a sledgehammer it, it's it's really gonna hurt whatever the fly is underneath more than the fly or as much as the fly that uh um <laughs> that there's better way if you don't want bikes on those trails we can talk about that but the wilderness act is not really a good tool to achieve that end and there were other reasons they were doing it but it definitely became apparent that for a few people that was one of their drivers I work on trails largely to as a conservation mechanism. That's what drives me to develop new trails. I see a huge potential um, confluence between riparian area protection, probably the most important acres of open space in this country we need to protect are all those areas along rivers and riparian zones. And combining that with the demand for trails to create both transportation and recreation trails that are inside those riparian corridors. And we can use that to help drive acquisition of those lands. We're going to see a huge migration in the next 10 to 15 years that uh, the remote worker economy, folks like ourselves who can work remotely as uh, um, satellite internet comes on board, all the rural areas are going to be open. Yeah, And many of those river corridors, I can already see it in Virginia where they're turning from farms into little chalets all down the river, places that felt like public open space before because you were in the back of a farm in a big forest, and now they're 
little mansions running down the river with yards going down to the river. If we want to help protect those zones, trails can help drive support for acquiring those properties or putting those in easements. And then, and then we can use those trails to connect our larger open spaces. So the whole idea that you could not just have trails close to your home, but that you could have the opportunity, even if you didn't take advantage of it that often, that you could ride out your door and go for a multi-week adventure. That the trail network that went to the national forest, that went to the state park, connected to the national forest, connected to the next national forest, and that you could just ride out your door, go to the street at the end, hop on that single track, and that could take you on a months-long journey 10 states away, all via trail. That that kind of integrated trail network and our stream and riparian corridors can help provide the backbone for that. That sounds great. <laughs> Gotta have a dream. Gotta have a dream. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Well, Richard, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking all the the time to to chat and and discuss and and um, you know, it gives me a lot of hope with um with I think we're we have a lot of new voices coming into the sport, and I think with that, um, we're going to be able to drive a lot of change as well, which is wonderful. And that's I, if I can speak for Imba, Imba's greatest successes have been when we have assisted and helped empower folks, when we've leveraged the grassroots, the passion that folks have for the trails they want to ride, for the bikes they want to ride, and just given a little a tool here, a little bit of help there, a little bit of advice there to help those communities, to help those folks make their communities blossom. It's uh, so many times we've stumbled across trail systems that uh, have been built almost entirely by local volunteers or by local communities with just a little bit of assistance or a little trail building school for inspiration. And that's uh, hopefully the model that we will continue in the future to collaborate and uh, showcase other communities' successes and give no more help than is needed for people to take the next step and make it happen themselves. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. Thanks for what you're doing. This episode of the podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo Nations. My guests join me from the traditional territory of the Manahoak. If you're curious to learn more about the traditional territory that you occupy and recreate on, then visit native-lands.ca. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesNTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. And you can send me an email or an audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Thank you to my guest, Richard Edwards. In the show notes, you'll also find links to Imba, Trail Solutions, and a number of links that Richard has sent over. So check those out. I've decided to no longer utilize the Amazon affiliate program. Keep your eyes out for some new opportunities to support the show. In the meantime, you can always support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes. Thank you to Ernest, Alex, and Susie for supporting the show. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Welneck and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.